fashion for the boss lady, and you don't have to buy it. We're delivering about $3,000 worth of designer inventory through your virtual closet. You pick four. Enjoy them for as long as you want. When you're done with them, send them back to us and get new things. How ethics come into play with nonprofit investors. In many instances, we are storytellers. To really engage and use terminology, move away from acronyms that confuse the population. The oldest distillery in Boston. There were roughly 30 of us doing this after Prohibition. We acquired the last two competitors within the past 20 years. Family owned for five generations. We're the only ones doing this in the state. There is no room for error. This is The Language of Business, a weekly podcast designed to inform and inspire entrepreneurs and anyone thinking about a startup. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. On this episode, we look at a young entrepreneur from MIT who figured out how to make fashion for the boss lady affordable plus how ethics come into play with nonprofit investors, and why the oldest distillery in Boston puts a high value on employees. Here's Greg Stoller with Ambika Singh, CEO of Armoire, fashion for the boss lady. Thanks, Don. Not happy with what's in your closet? How would you like the chance to replace all of it within 15 seconds without having to buy any of it? We're on location at MIT's Trust Center for Entrepreneurship with Ambika Singh, the CEO and co-founder of Armoire, and welcome to Language of Business. Thank you. I had had this problem essentially all my life. I had a very overstuffed closet that I had spent tons of time curating and maintaining, and yet, even though I'm not a wasteful person and it bothered me that I was wasting, I really wanted something different to wear. And so I thought, hmm, there's got to be a better way, especially because the clothes that I'm consigning or giving away are essentially new. And I had been sharing clothes with my friends, my cousin, my mom all my life, and I thought, hmm got to be an easier way to make this happen. How can you replace an entire wardrobe in less than 15 seconds? Well, the way you can do it is that first, we're going to understand your preferences, both from a style and fit perspective. And then we're going to use that information to run through our algorithm and decide what kinds of things might you like. Then we'll put 10 to 15 of them in a virtual closet. And from that closet, you pick four. Enjoy them for as long as you want. And when you're done with them, send them back to us and get new things. How do you know if the 10 or 15 that your algorithm is suggesting aren't going to look good on you at all? So we learn that over time. Basically, what we're trying to do is figure out from the past things that you've rented and from people who look like you, what kinds of things have really fit for them and for you. And with those two pieces of information, we kind of triangulate and figure out what we think you might like. You have an unlimited number of sizes for every wardrobe choice. We have an unlimited amount of choices. We have different kinds of sizes and different SKUs, depending on what people tend to like in those kinds of size ranges. How did you arrive at $149 per month as your price? That's a great question. There's a lot that goes into rental, including the fact that we dry clean, we ship for free. So we kind of added up all of the costs and figured that we're delivering about $3,000 worth of designer inventory through your closet every month. So it seemed like a pretty fair thing on both sides and it still allowed us to pay our employees. You're co-located on the West and the East Coast. How do you run a business on opposite sides of the country? 
We do a lot of teleconferencing and using video services and can you hear me? Can you hear me? It's kind of a combination of really having a lot of trust between the co-founders and having great communication. You mentioned that it's fashion for the boss lady. Yes. Are your offerings only for women? Currently, they're only for women. And the reason that we really focus on women is because there's a different amount of pressure on women, particularly professional women, to show a lot of variety in their wardrobe. For example, if you wear the same suit five days in a row, as long as you change the shirt, nobody's probably going to sure. notice. Women change their dresses and their skirts and their tops and their scarves. And so the pressure, both from a time perspective as well as the pressure on your wallet, is really imbalanced. And that's why we started with women, because we want to make their lives easier. In terms of scaling the business, where do you hope to be in three to five years? We really hope to kind of coming back to what I said, to be helping a big percentage of professional women. So right now what we see is that they spend a lot of time both curating and maintaining, dry cleaning. And what really brings a smile on their face is to wear something new. And so we want to give them that opportunity without taking away all of the time and the pressure. What would happen if an existing competitor adjusted their algorithm such that they could give them 15 choices and rent four at one time? We really think that we're building a relationship with our customers that is something that will hopefully keep them with us. Essentially, the first box that we send you is the hardest for us because we know the least about you. But over time, we know more and more about you. And so by the time you get your second or your third box, we've really understood who you are. And so we hope that even if a competitor adjusts and starts curating, right now we're the only rental service that really curates. hope that our customers will stay with us. Are you worried that someone could look through all the inventory and not have enough, say, three months from now? The way the business works is that we continually add inventory. So the way the cost model works is that we've provisioned for that. So there's always something new to see. And sometimes customers want to see old things. And so we make sure that we've got back stock of things that she's loved before. Occasionally, she'll really fall in love with something. And then we offer really discounted prices for her to purchase it. But we think that this is a better way to buy because all women have looked in front of their closet, seen the overstuffed closet and thought, oh, why did I buy all those things? So we really want you to buy when you fall in love and otherwise just send it back to us. What's the single biggest item that keeps you up at night about your business? Are we going to be able to deliver on all of these big promises we've made? So uh, we really want to be impacting women of all different walks of life. And right now we understand the boss lady. Are we going to be able to understand the needs of all of them? And am I going to be able to keep the energy behind this? Because startups are hard. So right now, I mean, my team is what keeps me going. We're an amazing group of six co-founders. All women? and two brave men. So four women, two brave men who have now learned what a romper is and what <laughs> V-necks are. But they're a great group of people and I think we keep each other going. So. If you could finish the sentence, five to 10 years from now, we hope for a sale, merger, IPO, or other. We hope for an IPO. We're building this business for the long run. So we want to create real value for our customers and for our shareholders and for our employees. What did you get out of MIT's Delta V Accelerator? They gave us mentorship and advice from people who had run businesses like this before. They helped us preempt the pitfalls. They helped us get off the ground with customers by giving us access to them through press and through marketing materials. And finally, gave us some cash, which was useful. The founders got stipends and we had a little bit of money to buy inventory and really get off the ground. So the accelerator honestly was the difference between this living and dying on a PowerPoint and to become 
becoming a real thing. So we're currently raising a funding round and we're about 90% committed on the funding round. So we can definitely survive for 12 months with the cash that we've taken in. And to be at a thousand customers and $2 million in forward-looking ARR by the time we raise money again. Terrific story. Thank you. Ambika Singh, CEO and co-founder of Armoire. Coming up, why the oldest distillery in Boston, family-owned for five generations, puts a high value on employees. But first, how to be ethical when dealing with nonprofit investors as the language of business continues. Back to Greg Stoller. All companies, whether for-profit or not-for-profit, like to think of themselves as being ethical. But how does that change when their bottom lines are affected? Darby Hobbs helps financial institutions put a price on being socially responsible. She's the founder and CEO of Social3, and welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. What makes a financial services firm socially responsible? Well, there's, there's two levels. There is the whole area of reputational management, being conscious as a business leader and making right decisions in your management team. The second area of change is if you instill in that at the top and have that as your leadership domain, then maybe you want to also look at investment product that encompasses being socially responsible and environmental social issues so that investors can not only get performance, but also look at giving back in a global manner towards programs that can impact emerging markets or even local communities. So are you proselytizers? Are you consultants? How does the Social 3 model work? We are both, actually. I, I get pulled in to be a motivational speaker many times at corporate settings, um, at industry conferences, but it's primarily through our consulting. So we work with investment firms that currently have ESG, or socially responsible investing portfolios, to help them tell their story. And, and in many instances, we are storytellers. To really engage and use terminology, move away from acronyms that confuse the population, to really talk about the impact of that investment portfolio. And if that's something that you are passionate about as a, as a consumer, you will engage in that and begin to have brand identity. The other piece that we work on with firms are actually securities, corporations, and manufacturers that have, let's say, a corporate social responsibility officer. They may have an environmental social governance program. And they tend to operate those very separate from their investor relation area. And so that discussion back to Wall Street to say, how do we create capital formation? How do you spread your story that you're doing good while you're also maintaining the populations around the world towards goods and services? Um, how are you successful at that? And, and get value for that and, and allow investors to be educated and to then move money into your investment choices. Why wouldn't one of your clients do this in-house as opposed to hiring your firm? Well, they can do it in-house, and they, and they have. And many times we work with existing marketing departments and, and different media groups. But I will tell you that, again, that the concept of marketing strategy and telling the story and really getting at the emotive issues of investors has not been a strong suit in the financial services world because typically we've defaulted to performance discussion and we feel that investments are bought, not sold. So we tend to align ourselves to existing groups and sometimes the, the investment firms don't even have an in-house area that they can focus on and they have always outsourced it, whether to an ad agency or to a media firm. Does Social 3 have a set of metrics through which you evaluate whether other companies are socially responsible or not? That's actually a really good question. We, we started out many years ago to define a sustainability rating. 
uh, that would be used for financial institutions, but, but the criteria can certainly go across various um, sectors. And we're currently working on that with a number of organizations and, and looking at it as more of an index and, and something that would be defined around a shared value components. So taking it more into the conscious capitalism and, and, and the reputational management side because it does apply. What are you doing with your own company to make sure it is socially responsible? First off, it's who we work with. So, so making sure that who I surround uh, myself with and people that work with me uh, that our clients and client relationships are building the same passion, believe in the same areas, and really are driven by the same principles. And, and that comes down to what we value as business leaders and also our integrity. It also comes down to what their platforms stand for. So I can be somewhat choosy in Social 3 because of how we've defined the company and who we work with. That doesn't always happen for everybody, but that is truly from my standpoint where we're trying to drive it. Again, the projects that we work on, so doing the sustainable living plan, looking at creating an index, making changes in financial markets that haven't been changed in many, many years in terms of a process for selling investment product, that to me is staying close to our knitting, close to our values, and making an impact. And, and that's how I look at it. What would it take for you to fire one of your clients? Um, Truly, if I felt that they were not being representative of their word, and, and that comes down to what you value and the integrity. It also comes down to trust. If people cannot stand behind what they say, then I can't be affiliated with that. And I think you get to that point in your career to say, if you're going to make impact and change and rebuild trust in an industry that lost it, uh, you have to be the example. Darby, thank you. Thank you. It was great. Darby Hobbs, the founder and CEO of Social 3. Still to come, why the oldest distillery in Boston, family-owned for five generations, puts a high value on employees. Next on The Language of Business. Our sponsor is Art Lifting. If you have a small business, or even if you run a Fortune 500 company, you can uplift the look of your office with Art Lifting. Art Lifting has over 1,300 artworks in a variety of styles and prices. You can buy them or rent them and switch them up on a rotation every month or so. But wait, there's more. All of the Art Lifting art is by artists who are homeless or dealing with disabilities. So you not only brighten and uplift your office, you're helping local communities across the USA. To learn more and view the collection, go to artlifting.com. You're listening to The Language of Business. Once again, here's Greg Stoller. We are here on location at MS Walker in Somerville, Massachusetts. They are equally as concerned with the welfare of their employees as they are with making money from their entire operation. A fourth generation member of the family is Scott Allen, and thank you for joining us on our show. Thank you for having me. So what do you do at MS Walker? MS Walker is a fifth generation, 80 year old family business. We have approximately 400 people. Our business is driven into two different segments. The first segment is our rectification processing manufacturing business, which we've been doing for 80 years. Our second business is fine wines and spirits, which we distribute on a wholesale level throughout 34 states in the country. And what is a rectifier? Rectifier is someone who takes the spirits, the distilled spirits in at the high proof, 180, 190 proof, We'll take it, we'll reprocess it, and we'll bottle it under our own labels, under our own brands. We're the only ones doing this in the state. There were roughly 30 of us doing this after Prohibition. We acquired the last two competitors within the past 20 years. And what we do is we take the distilled spirits at the high proof. We'll either add flavoring, 
Everything we do has a formula approval and a label approval. We can't process or make or distribute any product that does not have those approvals. Okay, so now let's talk about business strategy. You work in a highly regulated industry. Mm -hmm. You hit that right on the head. We are a highly regulated business. We're regulated by the TTB, which is the Taxation Trade Bureau, which was the old Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and yeah. Firearms. Secondly, through the state, the Alcoholic Beverage Control Commission. And third, through the city of Somerville, for our permits for our flammable liquids and our storage permits. We have a good relationship with all three entities. We've had a relationship with those, the state agency and federal agency for over 80 years. We have very good people here that know how to run our business on a day-to-day -day basis, specific to regulations. There is no room for error. Okay, so that's your way of assessing risk? The way we assess risk, there are different elements of the business for risk. Our greatest risk we have are our relationships with our suppliers. We work very hard to nurture those relationships with our suppliers to make sure there's a continuity of supply. It could be the raw materials, it could be the finished goods. The next greatest risk we have are our people. We work very hard to nurture the relationships with our employees. We have over 400 employees. We have employees that have been with us for over 30, 35 years. We have very low turnover. We believe in the people that work for us. We work very closely with them, and our job is to make sure we treat them as family, and we consider them as family. Scott, most businesses in non-regulated industries worry about getting good terms from their suppliers upstream and dealing with non-payment issues from their customers downstream. How do you think through those issues on a daily basis? First of all, we have very low bad debt. It's driven by credit laws in the state. Specifically, there are 60-day credit terms in the state. By law, regulated by the Alcoholic Beverage Control Commission, if a customer does not pay within 60, 61, or 62 days, we're required to report that customer to the state agency. And in turn, every wholesaler gets that information. And in turn, you can only sell that customer on a COD basis. Secondly, if there is bad debt with a certain license and the ownership decides to sell that license, the bad debt transfers with that license. We dramatically reduce our bad debt due to that. Let's talk about material acquisition from your suppliers. Are you kept up at night about not getting the right materials you need in the rectifying or the processing? It is. We have a really good purchasing department. We work off of a demand plan report where we project day, week, months out what our needs would be, whether it's the liquids, meaning the distilled spirits, other material, it could be corrugated, it could be our glass that we use, it could be labels, and our purchasing department works very close with the representatives from those distributors to make sure we do not carry too much inventory, we have just enough inventory, and it's that juggling game that we work within. Where is the intersection between the regulations and the risk assessment ending and somebody sitting at a table and enjoying a good glass of wine? I hope they always enjoy a good glass of wine or, or a good spirit. We have a team of brand managers. Their responsibility is to make sure the wine that they bring in, there's a demand for that wine. We may create a demand for that wine. It's either through branding, marketing, or just pounding the pavement on the street. Our job is to bring the spirit or wine, wine specifically in with a vintage, and make sure we distribute that spirit within three to six months, uh, preferably, or sooner to be able to uh, turn over the spirit and get it to either retail account or a restaurant. Thanks, Scott. Scott Allen, one of five generations successfully managing MS Walker. Thanks, Greg. 
We publish a new episode of The Language of Business every Tuesday. We're available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and TuneIn and Google Play and Stitcher or just say, Alexa, play The Language of Business. Searching for latest episode of The Language of Business. Here it is from my cast. We now have downloads in 38 countries, 29 states, and four provinces. We appreciate the support, and it's very helpful in keeping the podcast going. If you haven't subscribed yet, we're easy to find anywhere you get podcasts, and you'll get new ones automatically. Our director is Mark Mandel. Social media by Jennifer Powell of ExcellentWriters.com. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio editing and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of SomethingYouShouldKnow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business.